0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Karki. You are again with the New Books Network. And today I have uh, Dr. Philip Sang with me today, who would be talking about his uh, recently published book um, in in November last year with uh, John Hopkins University Press, The Obsolete Empire. Uh, Hello, Dr. Sang. How are you today?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Very good. Thank you. Um, As always, I would like to start uh, at the beginning. Um, What is the genesis of this book? What were some uh, initial ideas when you started writing this?
1: Yeah, so, um, so my book originated in my doctoral research on literary modernism. I've always been interested in questions of displacement and identity, and in how literature addresses, mediates, and um, complicates those questions. Um, So when I was in graduate school, I was drawn to a group of writers who grew up in Britain's colonies or former colonies and whose careers were shaped by the long decline of the British Empire. So four of these writers became the central subjects of my book. Henry James, James Joyce, Doris Lessing, and V.S. Naipaul, I found in their works a certain restlessness, not only in the content, but also in the style of writing. And this restlessness stems from the peripheral relation to England. So in an earlier version of this project, I tried to understand that restlessness in light of theories of cosmopolitanism. But then I found that framework to be too general and predictable. As I thought more about these writers, I realized that what ties them together is a particular pattern of frustrated attachment. This attachment has three distinct features. First, it is an unreciprocated or unrequited attachment because these writers express a constant sense of estrangement or exclusion from England. Rather than fully reclaiming an English heritage or identity, They live in the gap between an exclusive Englishness and an expansive Britishness. They were claimed by the British Empire, but they were not desired as its proper citizens. And second, this is an improper attachment in the sense that England appears as the wrong object of desire. These writers longing for England is a self-consciously misplaced attachment imbued with irony and embarrassment. And third, this is an untimely attachment. Uh, As I said earlier, these writers all grew up outside of England and they could only construct an imaginary England from English fiction and poetry. But the actual Imperial England they imagined was in decline, Um, or you could say that it never existed in, in reality. So I was struck by the consistency of these three characteristics across all the writers I look at. This frustrated attachment gives rise to that restlessness I mentioned earlier, which, as I show in my book, entails a unique historical awareness and intellectual openness and and a refusal to rest content with any fixed notions of identity and community.
0: Um, Thank you for your answer. And this is, I hope, what you mean by the obsolete empire, the British empire that is uh, not there. Um, But you said something very interesting, is that this empire maybe really never existed. What do you mean by that?
1: Uh, So what what, what I mean is that because these writers... Uh, grew up outside of England, um, and they uh, were avid readers of English poetry and, and and fiction. So they, so the England that they um that that they constructed uh, in their minds, um, was an England that was literary, literarily constructed. Right? It's 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 a series of literary impressions. Um, it's 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 frozen in time. It's it it can only be found in books. It's it it does not reflect the actual reality um, of 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 England. So that's what I meant by um, an untimely attachment, right? Like like this is uh, uh this is an England that is in decline. That is that in reality is is in decline, but it seems frozen in time. Um, in the books they they read
0: um and you're right and there are uh, a series of words that are in the semantic field that you're using uh, untimeliness lateness obsolescence um could we um talk a little bit more about these terms so that we can help to distinguish clearly what we are talking? sure
1: uh so um so one of the one of the words that i use is obsolete, right? The, the, the obsolete empire. So what I mean by that is that the British empire has left behind not only an abundance of material relics, but also an inventory of feelings that could not be easily relinquished. So let me unpack this, this claim. Um, now, when we think of obsolete objects, we're talking about objects that may seem to have worn out um, or broken, but they are still there. Um, Their obsoleteness has as much to do with their continual existence as with their degradation. So one way to think about the empire as obsolete is in terms of its material persistence, in terms of the many buildings, railroads, um, and museum pieces that still exist today. But what I'm more interested in is the obsolescence of subjective experience. So the premise of my book is a simple one. For people who were molded in imperial structures and institutions, they harbored a deep identification with British culture, regardless of their views on empire. And the question that I want to ask is, what happens to those identifications and desires and attachments formed during the colonial era, when the political institutions that upheld them have ceased to function? So many colonial writers were were preoccupied with this question. Let me give you an example. Stuart Hall begins his autobiography, Familiar Stranger, by describing himself as the last colonial, right? He says, sometimes I feel I was the last colonial. So technically speaking, there is no last colonial because England uh, still still has um, overseas territories to, to this day. But by calling himself the last colonial, Paul is articulating a common feeling among the writers I study, um, and and this is a sense of being a sense of finding oneself at the end of a historical line, but unable to move beyond that end. So to describe the British Empire as obsolete is to challenge the sequential logic of the end of empire. Instead, for the writers in my book, empire defers its proper ending and enters a state of perpetual suspension. Um, And there is also an empirical sense of obsolescence to my book. Uh, When I began this project, two of the main writers were alive, uh, but now all of them are dead. So there is a a literal sense of obsolescence to my project in that the completion of my book witnessed the the passing of a literary lineage of a long succession of writers who grew up in the British Empire. So you also asked about um, untimeliness and, and, and lateness. Now, um, I think that the difference between these two terms uh, lies in emphasis. So untimeliness is opposed to timeliness, right? So to be timely is to, is to do the right thing at the right time. Um, to be untimely, then, is, is to fail at that, is to fail to establish a proper correspondence between one's activity and time. So my book argues that untimeliness is a constitutive feature of the peripheral experience of empire. In the introductory chapter, I highlight a split between metropolitan and peripheral perceptions of imperial decline. While many English writers were eager to bid farewell to their country's imperial past, their colonial counterparts did not have the confidence or resources to declare an end to an empire that was not theirs. So the British empire became the site of what I call untimely belonging. Untimely, not because the empire has run its course, but on the contrary, because it endures as a structure of desire that outlived its political lifespan. Now, the word lateness has a broader meaning. It implies untimeliness, but it also signals an experience of time in which one cannot speak of chronology or development. Now, I borrow the term lateness from Edward Said's book On Late Style. And many scholars see this book as a departure from from Sayyid's earlier work on imperialism. But as I argue in the introduction, Sayyid's reflections on lateness in fact extend and complicate his his earlier analysis of empire. His insight that lateness is untranscendable perfectly captures the predicament facing many late colonial writers. C. L. L. James, for example, writes about his um, about his colonial upbringing in Trinidad in his book Beyond a Boundary. Um, And he talks about how he doesn't want to be liberated from the colonial past and he doesn't want to be liberated from 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 the, the future of that past. So. Like James, many writers from former British territories were at a loss to comprehend the demise of an empire to which they had no legitimate claim.
0: And, and this is very interesting that you say that. And why why was this? Why was this belonging or identification among the colonial subjects uh, persisting in, in these colonies? Um, I mean, one would think that they would want to get rid of that. Idly, wouldn't they?
1: Yeah. So I I actually um, addressed this this um, this dilemma um, in the in 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 the introduction. Um, I think that in um, in the study of empire or in um, post-colonial studies, um, attachment is is not a word that comes to mind. Um, uh, instead, we are more used to thinking about uh, anti-colonial resistance. Um, you know. Uh, all kinds of strategies to uh, subvert um, uh, and deconstruct uh, colonial ideologies. But, but what I find uh, in these writers and, 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 and many other writers I, I, I looked at is that, um, is that um, regardless of their views on empire, right? Some of them are anti-colonial, others are more ambivalent. Right? They, they, they harbor the, the, this deep identification with, with British culture. And that's why I said earlier, the premise of my book is, 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 is a really simple one. Right? I, I, I accept that these writers have, um, ha, have widely divergent views um, on empire. But, uh, but, but there is this lingering attachment to British culture uh, that in turn mediates uh, whatever views they have about uh, empire. Um, so, so, uh, so, so, my book doesn't really challenge um, the protocols of of colonial studies. Um, instead, I'm calling for more attention to these messy and complicated feelings toward the British Empire.
0: Um. Uh, thank you for your answer this is this uh, leads us very nicely into the next question which um, i want to talk about a belonging and otherness uh, which you have discussed in in the beginning of the book and also uh, at the end of the book and uh, you claim that otherness is not just a, a question of difference that could be i mean easily compared with with the normative is is this correct is it that-
1: Yeah. So, um, so I believe you, you're referring to, uh, the, uh, the epilogue, uh, to my book in which I, um, I address this, this paradigm of alternative modernities. Um, so I think it's fair to say that, uh, that there is a tendency, um, in, in literary studies, um, and across the humanities to translate cultural otherness into cultural difference, right? So, so, uh, so cultural difference um, comes with positive connotations. Um, it it can be affirmed and um, and, and and inhabited. So we're we we we're, we're not talking we're we we're, we're not t- talking about um, the the otherness of uh, foreign or more, or or marginal cultures. Rather, we are celebrating a plurality or diversity of cultural differences. So um, so my so my question is a simple one, which is when can otherness be recuperated as cultural difference? And when does otherness remain just otherness? So I think what's interesting about um, uh, the British Empire is that it's it's is this experience of of othering in time right this 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 experience of um, of Um, of, of temporalized difference as opposed to uh, different temporalities. Um, You know, what, what, what we see in, in, in these writers I look at is, is this, is, is, is that otherness cannot be affirmed, right? For, for them, um, they're, they're, you know, they express this experience of, of otherness that cannot be viewed in positive terms, but can only be experienced as a chronic untimeliness. Um, and and what comes with that is a series of unrequited or conflicted or outlandish desires, right? So 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 I'm really interested in these, um, um, you know, the, these these messy and um, uncorrectable feelings of being a colonial subject.
0: Um, and to what extent should we take these uh, incorrect feelings uh, these perversity these affections seriously when we are talking about post colonial literature
1: well i i i think that um well first of all uh these the, you know what this this inventory of feelings you know actually existed right uh these are experiences of many generations of uh, colonial and peripheral um writers. So so part of the motivation of my book is to is to reclaim those feelings, right? To say that 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 they that that um that that we need to look at them. Right. Um, but then I you know I but then I, I also want to think through uh post-colonial criticism's um discomfort with those feelings right so so why is it that we are uncomfortable when certain writers express their lingering attachment to imperial England. Right. Um, and, and I think one, um, one lesson to be drawn from this, um, is that, is that attachment is not affirmation or endorsement. Right. So, um, so I don't claim that these writers, um, you know, celebrate, uh, the, the, um, you know the glory of the of of the British Empire. That's 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 not my point at all. But the very fact that these attachments are frustrated, the very fact that these these attachments are unrequited, un, unrequited and, and and improper, um you know, it it I want to show that these troubled and troubling attachments actually coexist with other uh political investments, including anti-colonial ones. Right? So 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 in, in in an unlikely way this this self consciously misplaced attachment this this um this unresolved complex of shame and desire becomes for these writers a rich source of intellectual um energy right so so i so i want to show that um these imperial attachments which as i said are unreciprocated improper and untimely could be as disruptive and um, subversive as anti-colonial projects.
0: Um, thank you. Um, um, and you have read uh, these attachments in fin four authors: Henry James, James Joyce, Doris Lessing, and V.S. Naipaul. Um, so the so um, the question begs itself: Why these, and and, and why not others?
1: Yeah. So uh, so there are two main reasons why I chose these writers. Um, The first reason is their long careers, right? So these are really prolific writers whose careers spanned decades. Um, So this allows me to track the development of their aesthetics across a longer period of time. And the second reason is that these writers have rarely been grouped together. Um, After all, they are very different writers and have been associated with different canons and traditions. But I take advantage of this diversity to frame the obsolete empire as a cross-cultural thematic. My goal is not to homogenize these writers or to argue that they share the same relation to England. And I, sh- I, and I should also stress that their views on empire are widely divergent. Um, I don't want to say that um, you know, they, uh, you know, they, they, they all express uh, a certain uh, attitude to England that, that, that can be summarized. What I want to demonstrate is, instead is, an, is a connected but varied pattern of frustrated attachment of which these four writers are representative, but not exhaustive examples. There are many other writers that can be fitted into my book. Um, so I have discussed some of them in my introduction. Um, there are also other writers that I didn't have room to write about, such as Catherine Mansfield, Jean Rees, Sam Salvin, and Jamaica Kincaid. But I hope my book can open up a fresh line of analysis for these other writers.
0: Um, Yes, uh, I completely agree with that. Uh, So let's come to now the first author, which is Henry James. And um, uh, I would like to ask what does his identification with the British Empire entail?
1: Now, um, Henry James is an interesting case. Uh, In fact, you could say that he is an outlier in my project because he is the only writer in my book who did not grow up under British rule. But I was struck by how closely he fits into the pattern of frustrated attachment that I found in the other writers. Um, James's identification with the British Empire manifests itself in his Anglo-Saxonism which is an imaginary of of a single, united Anglo-Saxon race across the Atlantic and all over the world. So you see this Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Saxonist rhetoric throughout his body of work. Um, And I claim that this is not a celebration of his English heritage, pure and simple. It's not that at all. Rather, this is a peculiar imaginary filled with contradictions and paradoxes. So um, he calls himself the adoptive son of England. But at the same time, he cherishes his distance from the imperial capital. Um, He would project all these um, fantasies about, um, about Britain's expansion in his essays. But he also seems to be ridiculing himself. So there's this playful ambiguity in his writings about England that not only unsettles the binary of English versus American, but also destabilizes the norms of national or transnational belonging, right? So, so this, this Anglo-Saxonist rhetoric um, is not an opportunity for him to reclaim um, an English heritage, but rather it is an expression of a misplaced attachment. Uh,
0: and, and, and how does, how, could you give me an example of how does this work? How is this misplaced att- attachment?
1: Yeah. So so um, so um, my claim is that th- this 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 um, this Anglo-Saxonist rhetoric um, is not a um, is, is is not a coherent rhetoric uh, or a coherent um, ideology. Um, James would say something like um, he 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 would comment on British imperial affairs, uh, but he would also say that I can comment on on them because I'm not English. Right. But 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 precisely because I am uh, a transatlantic alien, um, I you know, I, I'm at a better position to comment on 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 those issues. So if so when we read uh, James's um, early essays um, on on England uh, collected in his book, English Hours, um, we find these um, irrational claims um, about England and he. Often underscores the irrationality of those claims, right? Um, he would—he uh, seems to try to out English the English, but at the same time he would um, highlight how perverse uh, that th- th- those gestures are. Um, so, so, so that's what 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 I mean by. Um, uh, you know this Anglo-Saxonist rhetoric being a misplaced um, attachment, as opposed to a uh, a self-justified um, set of claims. Uh, uh,
0: when I first read your book, I, I was thinking about since it is a question about race, um, how peripheral could this idea be? And uh, if I understood correctly, uh, when you call it, it is so perverse that it is. Uh, almost ironic, and that is why this is peripheral. Is that correct?
1: So the idea of the Anglo-Saxon race is not peripheral at all. What I mean by peripheral is James's relation to England. But you're right that his Anglo-Saxonism represents a perverse loyalty, as he constantly highlights the irrationality of his loyalty to England. Now, what I find interesting is that this perverse loyalty yields aesthetic resources that can result in surprising effects. Let me give you an example. One of the texts I examined is the story titled The Beast in the Jungle. In this story, an English civil servant lives in fearful anticipation of an undefined catastrophe. Now, many critics have examined this text through the lens of morality and sexuality. My reading is that the story is partly a satire of an English bureaucrat. And I look at how James plays with some of the dominant tropes in British imperial discourses, discourses relating to British civil service and colonial adventure. By uncovering the geopolitical implications of the story, I show that the psychic void at the center of the protagonist's life points to a desert-like emptiness, a traumatic meaninglessness, that characterizes Britain's imperial project. And that's why I titled that chapter, The Perversity of Empire. James is deploying or engaging with the inconsistencies and contradictions within British imperial discourses, using them as aesthetic resources for a more vigorous and disruptive social imagination.
0: Yeah. Um, now let's move to the second author, which is James Joyce. And uh, when you begin, you talk about how and why critics are divided over his post-colonial heritage. Could you dress uh, an, an idea for us, for the listeners?
1: Yeah, so, um, so, um, so since the 90s, there, there has been a wave of postcolonial criticism on Joyce. But most scholars would regard him as an opponent of, of imperialism they would focus on his anti-imperial ethos and the subversive energies in his writing. Um, So uh, the rejection of empire has been a long standing critical consensus in Joyce studies. But recently there are scholars who have begun to, um, to reassess Joyce's relation to England. So my chapter continues this exploration of a British Joyce as opposed to an Irish Joyce or a European Joyce. And I do this by examining the formal design of Ulysses, which was published in 1922, the year of the creation of the Irish Free State. So Joyce's opinions on British imperialism elude easy summary, but I show that in Ulysses, his aesthetic experiments amount to an effort to suspend linearity and continuity of all kinds including the teleological foundations of nationalism, Irish revivalism, and decolonization. Um, So it's not that he is indifferent to Irish politics, but that he takes the, 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 the political impasse in late colonial Ireland as an opportunity to explore radical possibilities of community.
0: Um, um, and you have used the concept of negative community to to talk about his lateness. Could you um, uh, tell us what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so I borrow this concept of um, the negative community from the work of Maurice Blanchot, particularly his book, The Unavowable Community, which is in turn a response to a book by Jean-Luc Nancy titled The Inoperative Community. So Nancy and Blanchot challenged what they call the community of imminence, which is a community that carries its own essence and centers around a shared identity. Instead, they argue that community consists in a ceaseless negation of imminence. Community carries no inner essence. It is not totalizable but must remain open to the infiniteness of alterity. So this question of community is an urgent one in Ulysses, given the political context of Irish independence. And in fact, Joyce alludes to the, sh- to, to, to the genre of national epic and raises the question of what is a nation at key moments in Ulysses. Um, so my chapter contrasts two forms of community um, in, in Ulysses. Um, one can be called the positive community, And this positive community is most explicitly thematized in the episode Cyclops. The positive community privileges unity, sovereignty, and reciprocity. The negative community, by contrast, is predicated on incommensurable alterity. It is predicated on what cannot be assimilated into any categories of identity. Now, Blanchot argues that the the negative community can be realized through literary writing, because writing entails the negation of self-determinacy and the exposure to the anonymity of language. In other words, there is a constitutive negativity in writing that forces the writer to relinquish all claims of sovereignty or mastery. So I read the Oxen of the Sun episode in Ulysses as an example of this negative community of literary writing. In this episode, Joyce imitates the literary styles of English writers, but he never identifies which writers he is imitating. So the episode mimics the genre of the multi-author anthology, but it never allows the reader to come up with a definitive list of authors' names. The reader's efforts at attribution can never be completed. Instead, The merging of unattributed literary styles leads to an experience of an anonymous alterity that cannot be bound by any form of identity. By enacting this negative community, the the Oxen episode represents a unique response to the political debates on Irish home rule and republicanism, and also on the institution of English language and literature at the time of the book's composition.
0: Um, yeah um uh if we could now also talk about doris lessing um and um how does her work uh, elaborate on the lateness
1: yeah so um i look at uh, doris lessing through um through through the lens of what i call late realism so so lessing grew up in southern rhodesia and only arrived in england at the age of 30 Um, She wrote about her experience in The Golden Oak Book, which remains her most famous work and is often read through the lens of modernism or postmodernism. But she has also incorporated the same experience into another work, a five-volume series titled Children of Violence, which is written in the realist vein. So in literary studies, there is a tradition of pitting realism against modernism. And I use Lessing's work to demonstrate that this this realism-modernism dichotomy is geographically and geopolitically conditioned. This realism slash modernism binary might make sense in the metropolitan context, but in the colonial periphery where Lessing grew up, realist and modernist practices are not in opposition, but rather can be deployed simultaneously to reflect different aspects of the same historical experience. So so in Children of Violence, Lessing sees herself as the latecomer to 19th century realism. And there is this sense of belatedness in her depiction of Southern Rhodesian life. But we can also understand her lateness in in another sense, which is that she recycles literary genres and um, literary tropes uh, and images from, from the heyday of empire, like the other writers in my book. Lessing's formative years in Southern Rhodesia were marked by her voracious reading of English literature. But what's interesting about her is that it's, 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 it's her continued investment in these outmoded literary conventions that define uh, the imperial age. So I think a key feature of Lessing's late realism is repetition, right? So um so if we look at her uh, her experimental novels, such as um, the, mem- the the Memoirs of, of a Survivor. Uh, Lessing seems more interested in, re- in revisiting obsolete forms than in seeking innovation. She repeats familiar elements such as colonial romance, um, adventure, settler domesticity, Englishness, and so on. But then she also undercuts their original connotations of improvement and progress. So these literary remnants of the British Empire, if you will, um, are left in their fossilized form, um, and they brim with a deep sense of untimeliness.
0: And and you say uh, that in her uh, realist fiction, she is problematizing referentiality. Uh, is 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 that correct?
1: Yeah. So um so let me try to, def- to define um referentiality um in. So when it comes to realism in fiction, um, referentiality usually means the capacity for a mimetic portrayal of reality, right? So um, I don't want to go too much uh, into theories of realism, um, but let me just note that there is a tendency in recent scholarship to sidestep the question of of, of, of referentiality. Because, because scholars want to show that realism is not just a mimetic portrayal, right? It's not just a transparent uh, representation of reality. Rather, uh, realism is a more complex and multi multilayered um, rhetorical project. And my claim is that referentiality depends on, ge- on geographical location. Um, to put it simply, not all places have the same referential value. In Children of Violence, the narrator's favorite activity is reading. She immerses herself in Victorian novels and other English books. At the same time, she is disappointed that the colonial society she lives in does not resemble the literary England she imagines. So in a strange way, the the fictional world in books is more real than her reality. In the first few volumes of the series, there is a sense of reality coming from elsewhere. This, there's this constant tension between the representation of reality and the worthiness of that representation. So referentiality is at stake in Children of Violence because it is not measured in terms of mimetic portrayal, but in terms of colonial reality's resemblance to the fictional worlds in Victorian novels.
0: Yeah. Uh, and if we could also uh, move uh, to the fourth author, um, uh, the, the critic uh, Nixon says that um, V.S. Naipaul is not a good post-colonial subject, and I almost smiled when I read that. Could you tell us why would someone claim that he's not a good post-colonial subject?
1: Yeah, so um, so Rob Nixon is not alone in criticizing Naipaul. Uh, Naipaul is indeed a very controversial writer. Uh, so Nixon famously calls Nepal the post-colonial Mandarin, um, and there are other scholars who have um, n- who who have accused Nepal of of Eurocentrism, of being um, unsympathetic to colonial peoples. So I I, I don't question the validity of um, of many of these criticisms of of Nipaul. My point is simply that that Nixon's denigration of Naipaul as a post-colonial Mandarin antithetically projects his ideal post-colonial subject. Uh, So Naipaul is bad because he fails to contest Western stereotypes and voice alternative viewpoints, which means that a good post-colonial subject is someone who can do those things. Right. So 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 because Naipaul's critics have been so specific about what he fails to do, they in effect prescribe a set of guidelines for postcolonial writing. My chapter on Naipaul shows that he is far from complacent. Rather, the value of his work lies in its internalization of the irreparable psychic and cultural damage brought about by colonial history
0: um and uh like your discussion of the book says that he uses enchantment um to um as a practice to 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 question these assumptions could you could you tell us how he as an example of how he how he does that
1: yeah so um so so i was really interested in in why Nightfall keeps invoking the child's perspective you know why he keeps imagining the way a child would see the world. Um, And this is most evident in his early fiction, such as as Meagle Street um, and um, The Mystic Masseur. But we can also find that, that rhetoric of enchantment in his later works, such as The Enigma of Arrival. And my claim is that this trope of childhood innocence arises in a dialectical relation to colonial shame. The shame not only of being a colonial subject, But of confronting the humiliating history of colonialism. So, through the eyes of the child, Naipaul can ward off the debilitating effects of colonial knowledge. In other words, enchantment is a compensation for disenchantment. The child in Naipaul's work is an artificial construct, it is a tool for shame management, it is a deliberate effort to sustain an innocent view of the world against all odds. It is an effort to imagine a world without shame. So to give you an example, the the core part of my Naipaul chapter is an extended analysis of the enigma of arrival. Now, this is a difficult book to write about because it seems to crystallize the image of Naipaul as a compliant colonial uh, succumbing to the allure of, of England. I read this book as a full-fledged theory of colonial enchantment. The book is a fictionalized record of his years residing at a manor estate in Wiltshire, and he calls this period of his life his second childhood. At the beginning of the book, he arrives at a seemingly timeless landscape of rural England. The rest of the book is a slow process of demystification, The narrator realizes that what seems to be a perfect rural order and a timeless landscape is, in fact, part part of a longer history of colonial expansion, a history that connects the residents of that manor estate um, with, with his own family's history of migration from India to Trinidad. But in learning to see that landscape, not as timeless, but as historical, the narrator also preserves, or rather enacts the child's way of seeing, a vision that bars all historical knowledge. So that to demystify England is to relive the magic, to experience his initial enchantment in a more intense way. Um, So I show that the enigma of arrival proceeds through this unique dialectic of historicization and enchantment. It is through the, the child's vision that the narrator can confront colonial history without being held captive by shame.
0: Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's a very uh, uh, thoughtful perspective on things. Um, uh, thank you, Dr. Sang. Um, at, at the end of the podcast, I would like to ask you, what do you hope the readers to, to take from this text?
1: I hope my readers will see my book as offering a complementary approach to empire studies and postcolonial studies. As I said earlier, attachment is not a key word in postcolonial studies, but my book shows that imperial attachments are everywhere. Without looking at those attachments, we cannot account for the continuing prestige of British culture in today's world. So there hasn't been much scholarship on imperial attachments because Attachment to England sounds conservative, or even backward-looking. And until very recently, there hasn't been much scholarship on attachment in literary studies. So I hope my book can demonstrate that attachment is not affirmation or endorsement. To be attached to English culture doesn't mean affirming or endorsing it, especially when that attachment is unrequited. As I suggested earlier, Imperial attachments can be as disruptive and subversive and as anti-colonial discourses. And finally, thinking beyond the British Empire, I hope that my book can call for more attention to all kinds of improper desires and unrequited longings in our collective imagination today. Sometimes I think that attachment is a predicament because we don't always get to choose what to be attached to, right? can't always choose our objects of attachment or explain why we are attached to them. So the ideal would be to renounce all attachments. But because that is impossible, or at least very difficult to do, examining attachments at the individual and collective levels can reveal a lot about the violence and trauma that we are subject to. We can learn to denaturalize attachments and live with them even when they cause us pain. In a world of migrants, refugees, and half-citizens, I don't think those models of cosmopolitan dialogue or alternative modernities can fully account for the challenges we face. My book proposes that we need to look at those unacknowledged or illegitimate desires and attachments to understand the messy complexity of cross-cultural interactions.
0: Thank you so much. um, And I hope you have a nice day and a productive uh, writing ahead of you.